Welcome to Unexpected Points. I am your host, Kevin Cole. Thanks for joining me again. Uh, this was going to be a tough week to kind of come up with some topics. I had prepared some larger ideas on quarterback contracts, a stick to sports segment, going further into a book recommendation that I mentioned last week of Against Empathy. I think I'm still going to hit those two things, but uh, luckily we were blessed with some NFL news today. Um, although if you're Cam Akers, you're not, you're not blessed, of course, so RIP to him. But I'm going to touch on the Cam Akers situation with him going down uh, to a, an Achilles tear. I think it's interesting not only from a fantasy football perspective, which I'll discuss, but then also talking about how do we think about projections? How do we think about running back, um, not value, but ranked importance versus other uh, people getting into the, you know, quote unquote, tongue in cheek, running backs don't matter philosophy and how that should affect the look at the new backfield now and the difficulties in projecting it. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about Aaron Rodgers and what's going on with him. Just have a few points to hit on that since that is kind of the NFL news of the day. Uh, before we get into it, though, I want to give a quick shout out to other PFF podcasts here. Um, there's so many to, different to choose from. The Fantasy Football Podcast, I know, is going to have an emergency episode with Ian Harditz on everything going on with Cam Akers um, and where he will be going forward. There's also the Chris Collinsworth Podcast. And I want to talk about that in particular because Adam Schefter was on the podcast last week. He was talking about the Aaron Rodgers situation and the news that we had today. And I've been joking for the last few weeks about how during this dead season, we're just talking about Aaron Rodgers every single week. And there's some artificial news, I'll call it. Uh, I'll be kind to say artificial news, but not totally inconsequential news, which was Schefter mentioning this morning that Rodgers had turned down a contract that would have a contract extension, two-year contract extension. So it would have had him there for five more years, right? It added on to the back of his existing contract. And it would have made him the quote unquote highest paid quarterback in the NFL. Now, the reason I say it's a little bit of artificial news is because this has been reported. I think Schefter himself said this months ago. It was reported in the athletic by uh, the different Green Bay Packers beat writers. It was reported by Ian Rappaport, the uh, you know Schefter's, uh, the Bizarro Schefter over at uh, NFL Network. And so it's not news, right? Um, but I think it's important to parse through this a little bit and what it might actually mean. Because Schefter had a big discussion with Chris Collinsworth on the Chris Collinsworth podcast last week saying he was going to, he's kind of role-playing he's going to be Aaron Rodgers or Aaron Rodgers's representation. And then Chris was going to be the Packers front office. And they went back and forth and both of them could get dug in pretty easily on their positions. Now it's Schefter's contention. And as part of this tweet that he says that, that it has nothing to do with money. This dispute has nothing to do with money. And the evidence for that being that he did not accept this contract, which would have made him the highest paid quarterback. Uh, I'll say first off, there are some situations that have nothing, quote unquote, nothing to do with money. Probably the Andrew Luck retirement, right? That probably had nothing to do with money. There was likely nothing that the Indianapolis Colts could have done. Jim Irsay, the owner, could have done to get him to continue on. Uh, there may be irreparable damage in some other circumstances in the other direction where there's nothing a player could do in terms of money as far as taking as little money as possible that the team would want to hold on to him at that point. So I think they're, that's probably more common than, than the other way. Um, but looking at this binary sort of way of saying Rogers, his situation has nothing to do with money, I think is a mistake, to say the least, because it can have money not being the primary factor, money not being the only factor, money not being the defining factor. All of those things differ greatly from it having nothing to do with money. Uh, and the fact that we talked about this extension, uh, I want to parse that out a little bit here. What that probably means when you're saying the highest paid quarterback in the NFL, what that likely means is that his contract on an APY basis, the extension portion of his contract. Now, remember, when you do an extension, you're kind of starting the contract. A new, it's like a new five-year contract, even though it's a two-year extension. 
uh, you're rearranging all of the, the cash flows, everything else that's going on there. So he would get some more money up front. Uh, I'm sure there'd be a very, very large signing bonus as part of this, which would, which would give him that money initially. So he would do well. He would do well by the contract, right? Um, but it's not necessarily that the entire five-year window he would be he would be over the average per year that Patrick Mahomes established at forty-five million dollars a year. It's likely that those those last two years, um, the extension, the the new money portion of the contract would be over forty-five million dollars a year. And how that's parceled out, how much of that falls within a guarantee, how how solid it really is, or is it a five-year, two-year extension that's really just a rejiggering the money so that there's more up front and that the Packers can again get out after a few years because, I mean, Aaron Rodgers is old, 38 years old this season, right? Um, how, how soon they can get out of it. There are lots of questions there. I don't think it's as simple as saying, the Packers were willing to give an extension worth more than $45 million a year. So therefore, if Rodgers wouldn't take that, then this has nothing to do about money. I'm sure there are more things that can be done on the money side of things. I'm sure the guarantees could be higher. I'm sure the upfront cash could possibly be higher. I'm sure the way they tie themselves to Aaron Rodgers could be even higher. And all of those things would precipitate other actions that the Packers front office would have to take, like figuring out what to do with Jordan Love, like figuring out how to rework other contracts, how to figure out bringing Devontae Adams back in, all those different things. So it's a mistake to say it has nothing to do with money, in my, in my opinion. Uh, the other thing that I'll, that I'll say in regards to this is that the way that Rodgers has played this out, and I know this is a fact-based podcast, this is an analytics podcast, so I don't want to get too much into the details here, but I think that I'm not sure what Aaron Rodgers wants at this point. Um, you could compare it to the Carson Palmer retirement, you know, a few years ago, but this is a team that went to the NFC championship game back-to-back years. It's, it's a very good team. And I think it's also an important point when you're talking about whether or not he was disrespected as far as the, the Jordan love pick. I mean, the Jordan love pick has been debated ad nauseum. So I don't want to get into it too much here, <clears throat> but let's face it. If a front office is being prudent and this is going to come into the discussion I'm going to have about re-signing quarterbacks and quarterback contracts um, as the, the the primary, the meat of the discussion in, in this in this episode. Um, when we're thinking about that, you can't necessarily let your current quarterback's contract dictate the timing of making a move to replace him. You want to make smart, proactive moves to have the quarterback situation handled. You need to let the circumstances dictate the pick sometimes rather than your strategy going into a particular draft and the timing based upon how you're viewing your current quarterback dictate your strategy in that draft. Because if you're a good team, Quarterbacks are not going to be available to you every single draft. I mean, look at throughout history here. How often do we have a a quarterback late in the first round who ends up being a highly successful quarterback? We have Lamar Jackson, which which we saw there. Uh, But other than that, it's been kind of rough. I mean, we saw Derek Carr was a early second round quarterback who's ended up doing so well. We have guys like Dak Prescott, who was drafted much, much later. We have Kirk Cousins, who was drafted, um, you know, in the fourth round with along with Dak Prescott. So of course those guys are there. There are your rare later round quarterbacks who end up working out, but generally those were not, you know, we're going to react to what's going on and then be proactive replacing Tony Romo or be proactive replacing. Well, I guess he was drafted the same year as Robert Griffin. So it wasn't, it wasn't like that was a viable real um, competition for Griffin, right? Those were just ones that, that happened to end up working out as far as getting your eventual starter. Um, but what the Packers were doing was saying, hey, we're, we're drafting at the end of the first round. We're expecting to be doing so for as long as Rodgers is here. This quarterback, we believe in. We, we don't think we're going to get a talent on the level of Jordan Love at this point in the draft necessarily in the future. It's worth it. So we're going to let the player, let the prospect, let the evaluation dictate 
our pick more than this is a reflection of Aaron Rodgers, more than it's a reflection of, uh, you know, wanting to toss him aside and move on more that this is a iron clad succession plan. This is just picking up a quality prospect at a valuable draft slot that may be handy in the future. Aaron Rodgers had been falling off though. There was the infamous Ben Baldwin article about whether or not he was still elite. He had performed um, not so hot in the years going up to it. I mean, if we bring up here, I'm going to bring up his rankings, his EPA and grade rankings for, for Rogers. So obviously huge bounce back year. He was one in both grade and EPA in 2020, but let's look at the, the years before that, right? So 2019, before they made this pick, he was 15th in EPA rank 10th in grade. Uh, the year before that, 2018, 15th in EPA rank, ninth in grade. 2017, in a shortened season, he only had 277 uh, plays that he was involved in as far as dropbacks and rushing attempts. He, he was ranked 10th in EPA, 5th in grade, but again, shortened. 2016, so 2016 was really the last good year that he had, 4th in each EPA rank and grade. And then if you go back to 2015, it's probably the worst year he's had of any of these years. Uh, at least statistically, and that was 21st in EPA rank and 10th in grade rank. So if it looks look just at EPA rank, let's exclude the 2017 season because it was a shortened season. So going into this 2019 draft, he had been 15th, 15th, 4th, and 21st. Uh, It had been more than three years since he had a season that was better than 15th. So obviously there are reasons for the Packers to think about making that move. So that's part of the background. But by getting love, Aaron Rodgers still had the ability that if he could, if he played well, if he jumped back up and played like he did last year, that that would then alter the Packers' plans. They invested a late first round pick in him. That's not a huge investment. This is not an ironclad contract or free agency signing with. Um, you know, $90 million guaranteed or something like that. This is not a top 10 pick. This is not a top five pick. This is, this is a late first round pick. They can move on to, for that. And if they do, um, or they trade them at a discount to someone else, yes, it's a poor investment on their part, but it could be worth it when you're talking about being able to look at all the different range of possibilities. So I think Roger's being upset about that. It's either a miscommunication. It's something going on on his part in just taking this maybe a little too personally. Um, I know he's not the same caliber of quarterback, but when Matt Ryan was on the NFL podcast, uh, the football show, the athletic football show with uh, Robert Mays, who was being interviewed by him, they talked a little bit about with that number four pick, what was going to go on for Atlanta. And they said, hey, did they let you know up front? Are we going to be taking a quarterback? We're not going to be taking a quarterback. What's going on? And then, you know, Ryan said, which I think is a very reasonable thing, is he said, hey, they have to make these decisions. I understand how the, the game of football works. Uh, they were not consulting with me what to do. They were not telling me what they were going to do. And I didn't, I didn't expect them to tell that. I know the way it works. And the only thing you can control is how you play. And I think that was a very healthy attitude to have. I think that's an attitude that if Aaron Rodgers essentially did that, he controlled his play. He took the mantle and he should be willing to, if it's a good contract, take that contract and move forward. And I think that's, a, I think that's, you know, eventually what is going to happen. You never know what's going to happen, but I think that is the case. Uh, okay. So now let's get into the, the big discussion that I wanted to have here. And I said, it's related a bit to what I was talking about with Rogers. And that is the idea of what are we going to do with these contract extensions this summer? Uh, specifically for the 2018 quarterback class, they're three years into their rookie deals. This is the first opportunity that they can be extended. Now, Robert May's uh, Robert May's second second uh, mention here. Um, I should be I should have him as a sponsor. Uh, he wrote an article on the situation specifically with Mayfield and how we're how we're going to think about that. And the thing is as part of the cautionary tale part of the analysis. So let's say you're looking at the, the risk and reward of extending your rookie year quarterback, right? As part of the, the risk of that assessment, he mentioned the Jared Goff contract and the Wentz contracts, right? So he mentioned those as being the, what, what you might want to avoid. Now, what's interesting about that is... I came away from this offseason 
with a much different view than some others did. Some others may have looked at this and said, you know what? Um, what happened with Jared Goff, the fact that he got this extension, which was then renegotiated also. And I think that's that's a big problem. And I'll talk about that. But the fact that he got this extension and then ended up being traded away shows that it was a mistake because to extend him because he, he was drafted in 2016. So that means his rookie contract would have gone 2016, 2017, 2018, 2019, 2020 would have been the fifth year extension, right? And it would have aligned perfectly with this offseason that they could have gotten out of it and not had the dead money, not had to potentially or theoretically trade away more to the Detroit Lions to get rid of that contract, which is some people believe to be true. I'm less certain that they gave away much because if you look at the total trade compensation, a you know trading away a couple of first round picks, presumably late first round picks in future years is not a lot of trade compensation. I would say the first round pick they gave away is more equivalent to a early second round pick because of the fact that it's a year extended out. And the first round pick that they gave away that's two years down the, down the road is probably more equivalent to a middle to late second round pick. So it's really more like a couple of second round picks and a third round pick that they gave up, which isn't that much more than, uh, I don't know, look back to the Kansas City Chiefs when they traded for Alex Smith from the San Francisco 49ers. It was something like a couple of second round picks as part of that deal. So for me, the trade compensation doesn't sound so high that Jared Goff was an anchor attached to this deal that had to be uh, mitigated out by huge amount of trade compensation. So I looked at that deal and I said, you know what? They were able to get out of that contract. That is kind of a positive. Now, there was dead money, of course, associated with this. And I guess the the dead money for the Goff deal is, of course, they've been giving up dead money <laughs> left and right to, to a bunch of different deals on, on the Rams deal. Now, the thing was, I think was some people got confused here. This is some of the largest dead money charges ever for part of this. But dead money is becoming less and less of an issue. Uh, I think ownership starting to understand the concept of sunk cost here. So there was $22.2 in dead money. Not ideal, of course. Uh, and with Carson Wentz, there's a dead money of $33.8 So that's, that's the biggest of it all. Um, but looking specifically at Wentz, Okay, this is a quarterback who was a top pick, who showed upside, who literally was the worst quarterback in the NFL last year and was so, so god-awful. Everyone thought to themselves, oh, they're not going to be able to give him away. They're going to have to give someone trade compensation to get rid of him. The Eagles were able to trade Wentz for a contingent first-round pick, a likely first-round pick, unless Wentz gets injured this season, Right. So yeah, they took a huge cap charge, but from a perspective of a team that needs to make a transition and slightly rebuild, the cap charge isn't so detrimental. Uh, it's not great, but they're still, without Wentz, they're, they're not taking a cap hit on top of, uh, the cap charge is not larger than the cap savings, right? For, for, for moving on fr from Wentz there. And they're getting a first round pick. And they did a similar move to what the Packers did with Jordan Love when they said, you know, we're going to be opportunistic. We're going to draft Jalen Hurts, even though this is not a plan to move on from Carson Wentz, uh, but it's a quarterback who we like at this point in the draft who reminds us of a situation we had years ago with Russell Wilson where we waited and missed out on Wilson. We're not going to do that this time. We're going to take Hurts and have that optionality, which now looks very, very prescient in light of the fact that Carson Wentz wasn't who they thought he was, at least for 2020. And they were able to move on from him with the cap situation being what they have. So for me, so, some people are saying, hey, Wentz and Goff prove why you don't extend the, the, the quarterback because if they would have played out their rookie deal and they would have played out their fifth year option, you would have been out at this point. You wouldn't have had these dead cap hits. Um, now you wouldn't have had a first round pick if you're the Eagles, but, uh, but I, I think the exact opposite. I think what it showed me more than anything is that teams are comfortable taking cap hits now. And I think it really started with the Antonio Brown, uh, trade 
because going into that offseason, I was under the impression that there was, mistakenly, was under the impression that there was a minute chance that Antonio Brown would be traded because the cap hit would be so large. It was basically his entire, um, the dead money, excuse me, would basically be equal to his entire cap hit for that year. So there was really no cap saving. So they were going to trade away Antonio Brown and not have any money. So they were going to kind of pay Antonio Brown not to play for them is a way you could think about it. But that happened because obviously Antonio Brown was more toxic than any of us initially knew at that point. But I think even behind that, you know, these highly, highly valuable franchises, uh, we just have a new television deal, you know, a new $100 billion television deal or whatever it is um, going going forward for for these networks. So they have, um, the ownership is very liquid and, fairly wealthy with what's with what's going on and how they share the revenues there. So for that reason, I think ownership has become more uh more satisfied with making the best move, understanding sunk cost, saying, yeah, we may need to take a cap hit, but as long as we're not a uh, uh, dead money, but as long as we're not taking more dead money than the cap hit this year, we are not impairing our team if we decide this player is not a net positive versus what we can get in a trade. And we're seeing that more and more. And I think that mentality is important, not only for the fact that it's correct. I think it's the correct mentality to understand some costs, but it's also important because the real risk when it comes to extending these quarterbacks, in my view, is not the risk of the dead money or the risk of actually locking yourself in and passing up on opportunities to upgrade the position. The risk is thinking that you're locked in and thinking that you need to pass up opportunities to potentially upgrade the position. That's the real risk. The real risk is that by extending Carson Wentz, you don't draft Jalen Hurts when you think he's a quality pick in the second round because you've already made that move. The real risk is not drafting Jordan Love when you think that's the right play to do to make because you've extended Aaron Rodgers recently. Those are the that's the real risk. And if teams can view the extensions for players like Baker Mayfield specifically who's one of these should we extend him should we not extend him guys. The risk of extension early extension becomes a lot lower if you design contracts so that you're not trying to lower the immediate cap hit as far as you potentially can, um, put a bunch of money on the back end, put a lot of guarantees on the back end that will lock you in for the longest time possible. Don't view it that way. View it more like you want to be paying year by year, number one. And number two, don't let the fact that there's a big dead money charge potentially in the next year or two, maybe even three, although three is a little bit out there, but at least the next year or two, don't let that dissuade you from making a strong risk-reward decision to add to the quarterback room. If teams can do that, that takes really the primary risk that I see of these extensions is the fact that you do not want your current quarterback situation, as I mentioned before, to dictate the timing on your next quarterback pick. Uh, In in very few circumstances, that may be true. Maybe for Patrick Mahomes, that would be true. Um, But for all the other quarterbacks here, you don't know who these guys are going to be in a year or two. We thought Carson Wentz was an MVP candidate. He fell off. That was a lot part of my argument for why I liked the Jalen Hurts pick is we are less certain of these guys than who we think they are, right? So if you can accept that, if you can accept the mode that you say, we're not going to do like a Joe Flacco type of deal where we extend him and then have to renegotiate it multiple times, uh, rework it, restructure it, then you you can't get out of it for a very, very long time. 
avoid that. Look elsewhere in the roster for where you can make savings without using that quarterback contract as the lever because it's the most expensive contract. It obviously it often is the easiest lever that you can pull to free up cap space when you're making those moves. Don't overextend yourself in other places. Always be positioned to upgrade at that at that contract. So you don't want to be delayed in in your quest to upgrade a quarterback but at the same time you don't want to be rushed either and i think that is the risk of not extending these quarterbacks okay you're rushed and you're dealing with will we extend him will we not extend him on a annual basis the Dak prescott problem here and you're giving up tons and tons of leverage like Dak had so much leverage going into this offseason that he could become uh, you know, extremely high paid guy. He could get what he really wanted as far as the length of the contract, everything else. They, they were just, they just had to give in because of the, how expensive the franchise tag was going to be. So in those circumstances, you're letting the contract dictate to you in the other direction. You don't want to say tick, 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 tick. I mean, what would the Rams and what would the Eagles have done if they were going into the fifth year Um if they were going into the to the to the fifth year option last season, would they have let them play out those options and then hope to get lucky like they did this offseason and find um, a Matthew Stafford available to trade for who didn't really exist and hope that they could, you know, Jalen Hurts would have been good and would have taken over because if those don't happen, they're left, you know, flapping in the wind. Um, as much as you may think that you can just bring anyone in. You can bring John Wolford in for the Rams and be competitive. I don't think it's as easy as as some think there. And I think that risk, that downside is huge, not only from the perspective of a coach or a front office that could get them fired, but it's huge from the perspective of ownership who can lose out on a lot of the fan base if they have a dark ages period that they really want to to avoid of multiple years of of suffering. So you don't want to every offseason mentally put yourself in a position where maybe you reach at a quarterback in the draft because you know that you're hitting this window when that quarterback isn't available to you. So I think an early extension, and of course this is all contingent upon how much money it is, whether or not you can structure in a way to get out early, how willing the quarterback is to maybe take a little bit of discounts. Goff and Wentz were willing to do that for different reasons. Goff reason being he probably didn't have the highest level of belief in him. Uh, Wentz's reason being the injuries so all those factors come into play but I would lean somewhat hard on it I wouldn't uh, uh, lean hard on extending these guys early if only because for me I think it frees up the mind as long as you're willing to accept the fact that you should always be looking to bolster the position I think it frees you up to think more clearly about everything else that's going on Um, as long as you know that you have to build around it in a way where you're not impaling yourself with restructures and with other deals there. And I think it helps you be smarter outside of the quarterback position and the deals that you're making too. So teams should consider doing that even more. All right, next sponsor on the old agenda here is Fantrax. Now, Fantrax is a new segment that we have going on here. It is an NFL Fantasy Football League manager that is the most customizable, easiest to use. It is a feature-rich platform in the entire industry. And PFF, our analysts here, are gearing up to play leagues on Fantrax this season. You'll see some content from us about everything that's going on, including myself will be part of this. There's a lot of multi-team trades. There's player salary and contract options as part of this. Lots of different bonuses you can throw in there that are very different and makes it an interesting and really knowledgeable, friendly format for someone who can think about these things and not think about in typical PPR rankings. So whichever league you're in, you can customize exactly like you want. And what you want to do is go to fantrax.com slash PFF, actually get a chance to win a signed autographed jersey from Josh Allen, PFS favorite, my personal favorite, Josh Allen, who I do, I do like Josh, um, although we were down on him, of course. Uh, you can get that, and then you can show it on Twitter, and um, you, know, you can dunk on us, and you can wear it to jump on tables with Bill's Mafia. Um, that, once again, is Fantrax.com slash PFF, the home of fantasy sports. And now we're going to get into a sponsored segment here from Underdog Fantasy, but I wanted to talk about this because it's the Cam Makers situation, the other, the other new situation here. And before I start, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit you and just let you know that you can get 
a free PFF Edge annual subscription. So you'll get all of the different breakout running back and wide receiver articles that I'm doing, the projections that we have. And I'll talk about the projections now going forward for this backfield. Um, you get all that for free for an annual subscription with just a $10 deposit at Underdog using promo code PFF. So let's talk about what's going on with Acres. So th- the reason I think there is two minds on looking at how to assess the situation. First off, you know, this is obviously horrible news for Cam Akers coming into his second season. He was a guy who really turned it on in the playoffs last year, basically playing every snap, putting up a ton, ton, ton of rushing yards, not too many targets. So only three total targets in those two games, um, which is, was his downside here. Um, So he's, he's out now. What makes it backfield so interesting for the Rams going forward is Daryl Henderson's there. He was the, I don't know, kind of part of a three-headed backfield early in the season with Malcolm Brown, Akers, and Henderson. Henderson had his chance to start. He performed admirably during those times. Brown performed pretty well, and Akers performed pretty well. So if you want to go running backs don't matter here, I could see how you don't think it's much of a downgrade for Henderson, as far as his ability to perform here, uh, especially because Malcolm Brown is gone. Uh, Akers is now gone. And if you look at the rest of the, uh, the roster here, you have uh, Jake Funk, who was drafted in the seventh round. Um, athletic freak, though. If you look up as his spark score is like off of the off of the charts, right? But if you look at the rest of the depth chart for the Rams here, we have... Uh, like I said, Funk, Raymond, Calais, Xavier Jones is probably second in line to Henderson. So Xavier Jones is an interesting guy who, who put up huge, huge production numbers. Funk doesn't have much in production, but he does have a lot in uh, athletic ability. So I think what's important when you're assessing the projections now going forward, this includes a PFF, is when you're projecting, the the downside of projecting is that it's hard to have a placeholder for player not currently on the roster. Right. And we're talking about Daryl Henderson being gone. Now the Rams might decide that those three names that I mentioned, Jones, Jake Funk and, uh, and Cleos are good enough going forward and that they don't need to bring in a veteran, but they're probably going to bring someone in. Right. Um, But when you take a player out, let's say you had a, five-player backfield on an early preseason you have you're dividing my you take the player out cam Akers, who has the largest projection and now you try to re-split the workloads it's almost hard not to give henderson an equal or maybe even a little bit better workload just because where are you going to put all of this extra share are you really going to be giving guys like xavier jones right and if we look at um Xavier Jones. So he is, like I said, he's the, the second, the second back here. Um, if you look at what his numbers are, as far as his pro numbers, literally does not have a touch. Okay. In his career. And he's the backup now, according to depth charts, I guess zero. He's got nothing in his career. He's drafted in 2019, right? Um, or he's a rookie in 2019. And how do you think about that? So the only way to have a reasonable number for Henderson, meaning reasonably low, because you don't want to go too high on him. If you had Cam Akers as your, let's say, RB10 or RB12, and then you plug in the numbers, and then all of a sudden, Daryl Henderson's coming out as RB8, that's not so great, right? But in order to to break it down, just because of the fact that you need to get up to 100% on these different categories, like for rushing share, you're going to have to give someone like Xavier Jones, someone who doesn't have a single NFL carry, carry you're going to have to give him like 20% uh, share of rushing attempts. Then you're going to have to give another 15%, let's say, each to Cleus uh, and to uh, Jake Funk, right? To get up to 50%. And then you'll be, you'll be left with 50% share for Henderson, which is a great share, which is a good share on a high, on a high efficiency rushing attack. But that's kind of hard to do. So people may tend to give too much to Henderson. 
Okay. So I think there is, it doesn't matter. Like if he was to get that share that he could get there at the same, he could produce just as well as acres. The problem is he's obviously seen on a much, much lower tier to acres in terms of his, I don't know how to say it, but the confidence level, let's say that the team has in him. Right. So that's why we have to discount it. And we have to like move these other guys up even further than what we, what we think we can do. But then the real question comes into like, how much does, if running backs don't matter and whoever you slide in there does well, then doesn't that mean that maybe these other guys who are left who we can't project very high because of their past history, maybe they all should be a bit higher than we think. And maybe that then brings down Henderson. So what I would say for Henderson is we want to look to see where his ADP moves in the next couple of weeks. I've heard that he's going up in the fourth round-ish sort of area. Um, I've been looking to see if I could get some information of exactly where he's going in the very few best ball drafts that we've had. It's really hard to do because of the fact that um, you know drafts have already started and a lot of these are, some of them are, are slow drafts. So to get an accurate view on exactly where he's going to go, it's going to be kind of hard. I mean, I'm looking here at some drafts I have from FFPC, right? So if we look up, I know I'm trying to find some from today because I'm getting the information streamed in here. So if we look at the most recent pick date, so we have some that coming in today. But these timestamps are in the morning. But let me see if I, we have any that are early. Um, I see sixth round, sixth pick is the earliest that I see on here. Other than that, 11th round, 10th round. So it's really going to take a day or two to figure that out, I think, um, before we're really going to get some good information. Although I do see fourth round. Okay, here we go. I have some stuff here, actually. Sorry, I spoke, I spoke too, uh, too early as far as not having anything. All right, let, let me just narrow this down to stuff that's happened today. Okay, so we have third round, fifth pick, 29th overall. That's the earliest I've seen him drafted. Uh, I think that's a little bit early. If we look at the league ID here, let me give you an idea of who, who he's going before and after here. So if you want to see overall where he was going, he was just drafted. So again, maybe he would have gone even earlier if it wasn't for the fact that this news just hit. So he went right after Michael Thomas, after Clyde's Edward Hilaire, after Najee Harris, Joe Mixon are above him. But, you know, that's still running back. What? Let's see. That is still running back. He's running back 17. So I think that's probably a fair amount. I think that's where he's going to go now. Although I would be a little bit concerned if he starts getting up into 15, 13, let's say sort of area even higher, I would probably fade him at that point. And I would also fade a lot of the projections that we're seeing that just can't encompass yet to be acquired running back as part of the calculation. Cause I think that's going to be a huge mover on where he's going to be going forward. All right. Uh, next sponsor here. Again, this is one that we've um, we've had for, for a while. And I just want to, hit the fact that again talking about the pff stuff uh what i didn't mention before is the fact that there's a 40 percent off right now any subscription to pff so i want to make sure everyone hits that uh, not only do we have the draft guides completed for fantasy but the college football magazine preview the first edition of the 2022 nfl draft guide for you sickos out there um it's like that meme of the person looking into the window. Those are the people that are, <laughs> that are looking at the uh, 2022 NFL draft guide right here. But anyway, 40% off PFF subscription um, right now. So I would say take advantage of that if you can. Okay, so the last segment that I want to hit here is hitting the book, uh, talking about the book that I mentioned before, the Against Empathy book. And this would, of course, be part of um, everyone's favorite segment, meaning, uh, you know, the segment that I like that some people have actually commented on correctly, if, I mean, uh, positively, if you believe it or not. And that is our stick to sports segment. Stick to sports. Stick to sports. Stick to sports. Okay, so it's going to be a little book review time. The book is Against Empathy. And this is 
a book that is written by Paul Bloom. And Paul is a professor at the Department of Psychology at Yale University. He deals with cognitive science. And first off, just credit to Paul for the title against empathy, because if we're talking about something that's going to be a little bit jarring because it's so counterintuitive, uh, it's going to be a little inflammatory to get people interested. It's going to, of course, be counterintuitive um, because empathy is always being preached as something that everyone needs. I think he really nailed it on all of those, on all of those measures and to get some popularity from it. Uh, kudos to him, number one. But number two, let's talk about what the, the book is about. And let's talk about some definitional stuff here. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap this back around also to some stuff that will apply to the NFL. So maybe it's not a total away from sports segment, but it applies to a lot of different decision-making type of things or structural ways that you can set things up. So start with definition. So the definition of empathy, according to this book, and I think the correct definition, the way that I always think of empathy is when when you're literally feeling someone else's feelings, right? Where the quote unquote, putting yourself in someone else's shoes, but not just from an intellectual perspective, but from an emotional perspective. That's what empathy really is, right? And that's important because I think it differentiates some people who may think of empathy like just like compassion and compassion is, Rational compassion is what I'm going to contrast to empathy and what Professor Bloom contrasts to empathy as being a better solution. Um, so I think that's first. That's the definitional sort of stuff. And I think the foundations and the reasons of being against empathy um, are not that it's useless. It's not that it's bad, but it has characteristics to it, which are poor if we allow it to drive too much of our decision-making and it becomes a worldview on how we, how we see things. And I think the problems with empathy are that it's biased, um, it's provincial, meaning we are have a tendency to feel more about the same circumstance if we saw someone, it happened to someone in our hometown, someone who went to our high school, someone who went in the United States versus someone overseas. So it's, 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 it's locally more important, right? It's biased. Um, people, whether they want to or not, are going to feel more empathy towards those they believe are more similar to themselves. So um, it can be biased racially. It can be biased on a gender. It can be biased on the educational it can be biased towards family members much more so than towards others. So it's biased in those sort of ways. Um, and it's not really rational, right? It's, a, it, it's, it's feeling someone else's feelings, not dissecting a certain situation. And it's also highly impactful. It's highly motivational. And that's, that's the, the good and the bad of empathy, right? I, I think it's a mistake to say that empathy we should never have empathy or we should be fighting against empathy, even though the, the title of the book is against empathy, because it is motivational, but we just want to be motivated in the right ways as opposed to blindly biased motivation, right? And I think that first I'm going to tie it into kind of structures and, and how we think about things. So for instance, if you look at our justice system, I think this is a good structural way that they say we're going to try to avoid if we can we're going to try to avoid empathy right like who is the best person to decide the fate of let's say a murder suspect on trial would you want the police to decide that would you want the prosecution to decide what should happen to someone um would you want the family members of the deceased to decide what would happen. No, you don't want any of those things. You wouldn't want the family members of the accused also to decide what happens because they're not rational actors, right? They feel in one way or another, either anger or sympathy and love towards the accused in a more 
in a hardened way because they have more empathy from them because of the fact that of how they're attached to them. What we would want and what we've set up in this country is to have a panel of peers, but from a range of backgrounds and from a range of classes, from a range of sex, a range of uh, racial groups, everything like that, right? To try to lower or at least have different degrees of irrational empathy or hate that can counterweight each other, right? And that's important because when we think about it, the discussion of saying we should have empathy for our enemies, how does that really work in a practical sense? I mean, let's think about social media. I I talk about social media a lot because I think it's fascinating. I think it's a great source of information, but I also think that these are empathy machines that we have a lot of time, either on Twitter or Facebook or other things, where you the, the explicit model is to evoke emotion in the users. And often the, the easiest ones to evoke are outrage or anger. We've seen time and time again studies that go on about the fact that engagement is so much higher when you are to use the the parlance of uh, Twitter, you're dunking on someone for the on the other side of your equation versus praising someone on your own side. That's how you're going to get the highest engagement, right? And I think if we're to say, you know, what empathy is the solution, you have to have empathy for the other side, and then we would all work well together. Well, the problem is, if you're a highly empathetic person, if you're someone who really agrees with your one side here. Um, and you're seeing outrage over and over again. You're feeling the empathy towards those people who are who are experiencing this outrage. Not only does it make it difficult to have empathy for the other side, your actual your empathy is actually causing you to feel more pessimistic, more hatred, more outrage, more less willingness to compromise with with people on the other side, right? It's not necessarily a solution for bringing things together because of the the fact that that you have empathy for this person. I mean, how can you have empathy for someone you're seeing, let's say, be abused by the police if you're highly empathetic towards that, that person and then also have empathy for the police at the same time? right? When they're outraged about what's going on and, and vice versa. If you're someone who's empathetic towards you know, the police trying to maintain order and you're getting fed stuff of rioting over and over again, how can you also feel empathy for someone who is in a destitute, maybe a little bit more of a destitute situation who um, you know, doesn't have the same sort of respect for, for law and order because of, of what's going on? How can you look at them and say, yeah, I understand their, their situation and why they may be prone to do these things? No, you're not. You're going to have less um, the way you're going to have going forward. And empathy always also has this very weird aspect where it's enumerate. And I think this is a big, big part about why empathy is hard is that it's been shown that like, you'll see when people are trying to raise money. And I think part of this is like the GoFundMe generation that we have here, but having very specific people who we can feel for is a way that people are willing to donate money a lot. You'll see, let's say a campaign, a broader campaign, let's say starving children in Africa, right? Or wherever, whatever country it may be. You notice that very often they'd attach like a, a, a specific child to this. You, you, you donate money and then you get, you know, letters from this child on, on how they're doing because they want you to, that, that's where the real empathy is evoked, is thinking about that one person. And what's strange is the amount of, goodwill and feeling we have and maybe willingness to donate is very, very high for that one person. But once we widen our lens a little bit and move back our focus and we say, here are, here's a village with that, that child belongs to the same village, right? Here's a village where everyone's starving. We don't feel as much, you know, it's enumerate. We, we, we actually are less motivated to uh, donate to this village than we are to that individual, even though that individual is part of the village. And then if we move back even further, you know, we're less willing to give to entire countries that need aid or regions of the world. And they just become numbers, right? So when we're thinking about things in this emotional, empathetic sort of way, 
we lose sight of of the rational part of it. I mean, I mentioned the GoFundMe thing, but you know, I think people will be motivated to give money to people who are you know fighting cancer. Let's say who they don't even know. Maybe they're not even a fan of their work, but you can kind of see someone who is part of an in-group, who's part of a group of people that you follow, follow them, and then then you're willing to donate. They may be um, of a similar background that you are. They may have children, right? They have children. So you're thinking to yourself, oh man, I have children. If that happened to me, uh, you know, I start to have the, the sort, sort of, same sort of feelings. You can be motivated to do that. But again, that's that's one individual. And the money that's being placed there, probably the same amount of money that's going to some of these GoFundMes could, and I'm not saying these are wrong decisions to send anything there. I'm just talking about generally, if we want to talk about not from an individual perspective, but from a policy perspective, uh, you know, the amount of money that's going to some of these GoFundMes could probably be donated to causes that will help malaria in the third world, whether it's netting or medication or whatever, and save thousands of lives, Right. Um, so the empathy and the feeling that we have is not helping us make the, the right decisions here. In fact, it's a lot, a lot of times it's hardening our decisions and it's making us much more concentrated on the few who are like us, as opposed to the many who need, who need help. So how do we, how do we solve this? Right. And then, uh, I'm gonna talk about broader perspective and then I'll bring it into some football stuff. So how do we solve it in terms of the broader perspective? Well, that is, you want to first of the individual. Now, again, I'm not blaming people too much on this because I think these are very natural emotions. And like I said, they motivate people to do things more so than they would be motivated otherwise. So it's it's on net, it may still be good. Um, but you always wanna to try to turn the knob a little bit less towards empathy and a little bit more towards rational compassion. And by compassion, I mean wanting good for a person. So if you could see someone and say, you know what, I want good for this person without actually feeling the hurt or outrage or pain that that person has, if you can try to turn that knob, that's something you can much more universally apply. It's something that you can be more clear-minded and precise with your decisions and when you're thinking about these things. And it's something you can really apply maybe to both sides of of a particular conflict you can say you know well i want good for this side and i want good for that side so when you want good for both sides and you do that in a way where you're not bound by anger or by uh hurt or by outrage then you could probably come up with a better solution to do that which is what you're going to need to do unless we're talking about just you know you're just going to go to war and you have one side destroy the other in a particular conflict right um, so it, it's turning those dials and it's also looking from a policy perspective. Uh, I mean, one thing that's mentioned in that Paul Bloom mentions, which I think could be a directly applied to the NFL from a policy standpoint is the fact that, you know, professors at many institutions are not able to hire their children to work for them. You know, where, think about the NFL, Right. Uh, mostly in coaching, but probably someone in front front office. I think it's an easy solution for the NFL to say, you're too empathetic, you're too tied, you're too biased towards your own family members, whether it's your brother, whether it's your son, whether it's your son-in-law, we've seen all of these circumstances happen. And you just should not be able to hire them in the NFL. I understand that for some, it's like, maybe even substituting this family time that you're never able to spend with your children because you're so involved in the, in the craft of coaching. And, you know, maybe that's time to reassess your, your how much time you're spending in coaching as opposed to saying, I'm just going to hire my children to come work for me. Uh, I think that would really help as far as the diversity issues that are going on. And it would help point us more towards making the right decision for who people should hire as opposed to being driven by by empathy. Again, when we talk about it being parochial, I think we see that too, that coaches are very often just bringing over other coaches that they've worked with in the past. There've been many stories that I've read about coaches who are from a certain college. Um, and I think we've seen this to a degree with some Ivy League things that have gone on, but are from a certain college where when they're looking for a low assistant, a QC coach, someone else to come in, they'll call the college and say, hey, who you got over there? that I can have. Again, you're, you're using this kind of like empathy that you have, this attachment that you have to bring in people in a way 
that prevents, that is biased and prevents making the best decisions. Um, another way we can we can do this is blind, like it's kind of like blind auditions. There's a story about how when they used to do auditions for orchestra auditions for some of the big philharmonics, philharmonics and others, is that initially, uh, you know, they do auditions in normal way, but they really could not. It was very much all, you know, white men. They couldn't diversify that well. And what they started doing is having people audition behind a screen so no one could could see them. They could only hear them and how they were playing. And guess what? It worked. They were getting a more diverse people coming through. And it wasn't based on any sort of affirmative action policymaking, but it was really based upon not having that that empathetic tie. So I think that also could work very well in front office hiring and coaching in the NFL is try to lessen the interview process as part of it and increase the blind audition process. And one way you can do that is, and this is what Google and some others have implemented in their hiring practices, is you separate the people who do the interviewing from the people who make the decision. So the people do the interviewing, they write their assessments, a fact-based assessment on what happened during the interviews. Um, Try not to have it, you know, not colored as much by these feelings. And then different people who are not part of those interviews, who are not feeling this, you know, kinship with the person potentially and rapport, which is a lot based upon empathy, those people make the hiring decision. Now, if you remember when Matt Rule was hired by David Tepper a couple of years ago, there were all these quotes about like, oh, he kind of, he reminds me of me. He reminded me of, um, and the fact that he came from the the Steelers, right? Uh, that he says, "Oh, he reminded me of you know great Steelers coaches that we that we'd seen in the in the past." And that's how that's how uh, I was I was assessing him. I don't think he said Cower. I think he said Chuck Knoll. He reminded me of Chuck Knoll, right? That uh, that that's who David Tepper reminded him of. These are the the bias sort of things, you know. X person reminds me of me. That you know, number one leads to bad decision, but again leads to biased decision making that we don't want. So, um, one last example that I'll give, and this this gives this is another sports thing that I think really plays into how harmful empathy can be, is that they've done studies where they've they've looked in, you know, try to see the different centers of people's brains attached to different emotions. I know it's a little bit of pseudoscience, so I don't want to get into it too much, but they, they also tracked with um, written flyers and other things for, for fans of certain teams, they would show them footage of a, a person wearing the Jersey of the team that they liked being assaulted. And they would feel sympathy for this. I'm not sorry. They feel a lot of empathy for this person and they'd feel bad. Then they would show a person getting beat up wearing the uniform of a rival team. And not only would they not feel bad, but they would actually have some of the parts of their brain and some of the sensors, a slight joy that, that they're experiencing having, having seen this. And I think anyone who's been on social media will see this a lot too, where you have these fans where if they just had a little bit more kind of like rational compassion for their team and wishing them well, as opposed to empathy, where they feel like you are literally attacking them if you're saying something negative about a player or the team, they have taken that in. And we've seen how harmful and destructive that can be as a force for you know, kind of spreading goodwill and for a force of being an unbiased observer of what's going on. So everyone think about that a little bit more. Again, it's, I, I would actually recommend maybe checking out a podcast with Paul Bloom. Uh, there's one with Sam Harris that's pretty good. Uh, sometimes it's a better way of getting information on. There's one called Finding Dolores is the name of the, uh, the title of the podcast with Sam Harris that I would check out. Sometimes that can be better than even reading the book because unfortunately, you know, you, sometimes you have to turn an idea, which is probably more like a 30-page idea into a 200-page book in order to be able to make sales. So I think this is a very, very solid idea. It's really changed my thinking on a lot of things there. But again, the best way to consume it may be via podcast. Uh, lastly, before I wrap up, wrap up here, I want to thank people who have sent emails into me. If you want to continue to send emails to kevin.cole at pff.com, I appreciate that. But also, I had um, the PFF people add a channel to our PFF Discord for unexpected points. So what you're going to want to do is 
Uh, the link, anyone can sign up for the Discord. You don't have to be a PFF subscriber. If you go to the pff.com website, scroll all the way down, you'll see that there's a way, there's a link to sign up for the Discord server there. You can get on, find the Unexpected Points channel. I will be checking that and hopefully we can get a, get a discussion where it's not just me responding to emails, but also other fans of the show who can respond to each other. Or if you just Google PFF Discord, there'll be a couple of uh, tweets and other things that'll come up that you can click on and then click through. They'll have information on how to sign up for the Discord and get in there. And hopefully we'll have a great discussion there and we can figure out you know, what's working, what's not working with the show, what topics we want to hit going forward. And especially in season, I think I'm going to have some thoughts now that I switched over to the solo format for maybe doing a couple of shows a week, try to get a review slash preview uh, mix in some interviews, kind of what you guys would want to see the most and what's most beneficial to you. But I appreciate all of you out there listening. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in and I will talk at you again next week. Thanks so much. Thanks.